The following is a re-recording of a presentation first given to the Center for Universal Enlightenment on March 13, 2022, on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton. What does death and dying teach us about life and living? And what is the lesson of karma in both living and dying well? My name is Shannon, and this is The Light in the West. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm really grateful for this opportunity to speak with you today. I am a new member of Q, and other than seeing me and my cats in the little Zoom window, I know most of you know very little about me. And with no previous relationships, I am something of an outsider. And I want to acknowledge that, first of all, to thank you for making me feel so welcome and for gifting me your trust and providing me the space and time to share with you today but also to recognize that with my outsider perspective, I may be comfortable speaking about death and dying and spirituality in ways that others may not be. And this is a difficult topic for a lot of people. So I just want to assure you before we begin that my only intention is to ease suffering and to speak with compassion and support as a fellow seeker. So if at any time you feel uncomfortable, please do honor that voice without judgment. And I invite you to follow up with me afterwards with any questions or if something is activated by this discussion today that you can use some help with to process. I am not going to be leading you into a dark and scary cave just to abandon you there, okay? I am your guide and am therefore responsible for your care as we enter this delicate topic together. And I also really don't want to appear arrogant like I have all the answers, because I don't. I merely hope in love and trust just to share some of my observations and experiences with death and dying to maybe take some of the fear out of it or to soften the suffer that comes with it. And so with that said, I'd like to begin by playing you a slightly spooky Norwegian song. You might find it calming. You might find it eerie. I find it both. I'm not going to translate word for word or put the words up on screen, but I just invite you now to sit back and relax and we can listen to it together. Okay. <laughs> so that song is called Wandering. I think you'll agree there's something that's very beautiful about it, but there's also something about it that's a little bit off, right? It's a little bit dark sad. It was. I chose it because the lyrics reflect a common metaphor for death and dying that's found in a lot of Indo-European folklore. We rarely come right out to speak about death and dying plainly. You know, we, we kind of still don't. There's a lot of superstition and taboo about speaking about death because it is believed that it would summon it to you, right? You're calling it in. So instead, we have these stories where a wanderer character has separated themselves from their community. And they're usually out in the forest or some other wild place like a crossroads. And there they come to be seduced by elves or trolls or fairies or leprechauns. Some, something that draws the wanderer character down with them into the other world where they are then held captive. 
Now, eventually, the wanderer realizes what a terrible mistake they've made. They realize they've been tricked, and they miss their old life so terribly that they are overcome with regret and loss. But if they ever do get away and manage to return to the surface, they find that one minute in the other world is equal to a hundred years on Earth, and so they can't ever come back, because everything and everyone that they knew and loved has gone. The wanderer, seduced by the excitement of life in an other world, unknowingly chooses death. In this case, this woman has become so disenchanted with life that she is wandering in the forest and is struck by the beauty of a little pool in a boggy patch that is still and reflective, shining in the gloominess of the forest. And in that dual space, of sadness and awe. She willingly chooses to go with the elves. She doesn't need to be tricked, but she chooses to forget, to forsake her human form and sinks herself down into the marshy little pool in the forest, the trees reaching up high above her, knowing that she will never again leave this beautiful place and so her suffering and loneliness will end. So she has that same outsider identity that I acknowledged at the start, yeah? Feeling like she just doesn't quite fit in anywhere, that she's lonely and unfulfilled, or fears judgment and being misunderstood. She just can't seem to make her life work, or she feels like she's failing in some way. And this contrasts so strongly with that moment of pensive beauty, seeing the way that little pool shone like a mirror on the forest floor. It is without struggle or effort. It just is. And she comes to understand that that feeling of joy and bliss and awe is what she has been out wandering to find. But she is still so affected by her need to belong, that she chooses death in order to stay there. I've been there. I've always felt like an outsider. Even at 44, I'm regularly finding messages in like any situation I'm in that will reaffirm my belief that I just never really ever quite fit in. I have a lot of doubt. I have a lot in my life that represents isolation and failure and rejection of some kind. And I felt it my entire life, right? So much so that when I was little, I actually started to toy with the idea that I'd been sent to Earth by aliens as a spy to do surveillance work about what life on Earth was like. And so I, how it worked is I had a camera in my head. And every time I blinked my eyes, it would take a picture. So I always made a point of blinking with intention at something that I found particularly beautiful or important because I wanted the aliens to develop a compassionate view of life on Earth and fall in love with the same things I did, right? Don't, don't destroy us. We're, we're wonderful. As I got older, I first of all got a camera, <laughs> but I also moved to the city and went to university to try and better understand myself and my origins. Because I thought if I didn't feel that sense of belonging in my immediate family, maybe I could find it further back. You know, I was looking to find myself in my studies, like that girl in the forest, right? I wanted to find something that validated me, 
something beautiful and true that I could identify with, some feeling of awe that I could trust I was indelibly connected to. So I began to spiritually identify with that wanderer character, a seeker, a person who feels detachment from the regular world, be that through rejection, disenchantment, or just itchy feet and thinking that there's something else out there. We get pulled into different places and spaces guided by that intention of inquiry to expand our empathy or just to connect with the beauty and deeper purity of nature and that perfect imperfection that informs it. And with this thin layer of self-understanding, I found myself in the company of the dying. I, like most people, had absolutely no experience with death and dying until I was right there with it. We don't ever talk about it. And in fact, there's a ton of superstitions to say we shouldn't talk about it, right? To name death for a lot of people means to summon it. And none of us want that, right? Because death means the end of life. And there is a whole plethora of really great reasons why we won't want that. Number one would be because we like living. And biologically speaking, we have incredibly strong and resilient bodies. We are hardwired for survival. As humans, we have adapted to live in every single ecozone on the planet. Now, that is unique to our species and truly remarkable. Every ounce, molecule, and cell amongst the millions of reactions and processes that are continuously occurring in our body at any given minute, they are all working to sustain, support, and regenerate our life. There's a fun little biological fact about our humanness I can share with you right now. In your knee is your patella, right? That's your kneecap. You can reach down and feel it there. It's that little flat bone that hovers over your knee joint. Okay, so under your patella is a fat deposit that's called the infrapatellar fat pad. And it makes sense that it would be there because our legs take a lot of shock and force from carrying the weight of walking upright, which is also unique to our species. But what is remarkable about that fat there, this little fat deposit that our patella protects, is that even in situations of extreme starvation, where the body dies for lack of nutrition, your body will never consume that fat reserve because your body will never give up on you being able to walk to find food. So I like to rub my knees on bad days because it reminds me that I always have that power with me to literally keep going. We are survivors and our shared stories and prayers confirm just how strong and resilient we are. We heal big hurts all the time and we love that we need that we celebrate and honor how we heal as the key part of our humanity in anthropology they talk a lot about what is that critical evolutionary marker that distinguishes modern human from our proto-human ancestors and the best answer i've heard was from margaret mead who referred to a 15,000 year old skeleton that had a broken leg and what was significant about that skeleton is that the leg bone showed evidence of healing. 
the bone had been growing back together before that person died, which means that that person who could no longer walk to find food was being cared for by their community. And she said that shows when we become human, right? We were no longer beast. And it's no surprise then that mortuary and funeral customs emerged at the same time. Our ability to heal, to support each other and sustain life, to acknowledge death and grieve the dead, that's what makes us human. So with all of that in mind, it's easy to see why we are naturally really death averse, right? We are pain averse, we are risk averse, and that's a really great and smart thing because we will make careful and informed decisions to protect ourselves and our beloved. There is no, I wonder what would happen if there is, that will hurt, I'm not going to do it, right? And even our daily activities of bathing and eating and working are all done to keep us living. So death really isn't a part of our lives, right? We keep it away and separate. So when it does come, it comes as a very unfair and cruel intrusion. And I'm sure we've all had an experience with the unknowable grief that comes from the loss of a loved one. It always feels sudden and unexpected, even when it isn't. But therein lies the paradox of death. Because we think of death and dying as being about death and dying, right? We keep it separate and away. It's secret and taboo. It's really sad and it sucks. But all of our experiences with death and dying will occur while we live. And I mean even our own, right? We are going to experience our own death as we live. Even people that have near-death experiences lived through it. There is no experience with death beyond death. All of our experiences with death and dying happen through life and living. And in such an anxiety-ridden, unknowable, potentially harmful and dangerous, judgmental and lonely world as our pain-averse and risk-averse species lives in, isn't it nice to know that there's one universally true, absolute guarantee in life? We can trust death completely. It is absolutely guaranteed to happen. The one guarantee that we have in life is that one day we are going to die and in a lot of ways, it's the only thing that we are guaranteed to have happen. And if that thought makes you uncomfortable, let's just consider that this is something that we have in common with every other person who has ever lived, ever. Think about all those incredible people in history, right? We got that with them. But it's not just people. It's every living thing that has ever existed, right? Every creature, every plant, every molecular compound, every mass of cells that has ever experienced life in this magical world that is so beautiful that aliens will plant awkward eight-year-olds as spies to take pictures of it with their eyes so that they can enjoy it too. Everything that has ever lived in this world has died. 
and yet we still fear death. And that may be because we have been told stories that the afterlife, right, the part of death that no one knows for sure, is a place of judgment and punishment, of struggle and suffering. You know, sometimes of promotion, right? But a lot of us have been exposed to the suggestion that we are never going to be perfect enough, that we do bad things, and we will be judged and held accountable for that. So there is this fear of death that is based on what we think might happen after we die. But from a place of compassion and non-judgment and just appreciation for the function of story, are those tales not designed to actually inform and instruct how to live? They really aren't about death and dying after all, are they? They are using death to teach us about life and living. When death is discussed in sacred texts, it's done in a much different way. It's described as returning to source, union with the divine, right? Returning to God, returning to the point of our creation, returning to the creator. When we are released from our mortal form to expand and shine as the eternal light and power that we have only ever been, it sounds really wonderful. And science suggests that at the point of death, all of our pleasure signals and hormones are released all at once. So it could very well be that awe-filled, transcendent experience that we ironically are always pursuing in life. In being risk-averse and pain-averse, we are also pleasure-seeking. We like to eat and love and be warm and feel cared for. And it's like that act of communion. When we eat something to keep ourselves alive, it is because something else has given up its life to support ours. And so we give things back that other things eat and in turn make more food. And all of those processes in our body that are working so hard to completely regenerate and build all of our cells to keep us going are happening because just as many cells are also continuously dying and leaving our body at the same time. Death is what happens when all of that concentrated effort to hold those cellular processes of living and dying in symbiosis in our present form stops. It is release. It is peace. It is the end of that determined struggle of our body to stay alive. But bearing witness to that struggle is the hardest part about death and dying. It really is difficult and sad to see people get sick and die, to see them struggle to survive within the confines of a dying body. And as the bereaved, we have to process not only what is, but also what never will be. We are so often mourning the loss of the life we didn't get to have with the person who has passed away. There's a lot of possibility and destination that has to be let go of when someone dies. And we put a lot of faith in these things to keep us going because we are pleasure-seeking. Our goals are destinations that we are working towards, places where we will be able to live happier, brighter, safer, softer, stronger, more alive once we get there. Christmas in a house that's big enough for everyone to all be together or retirement, 
right? Or when we buy land, lose the weight, find that perfect partner, go on that holiday, get that promotion, take that course, you know, then, then we will be happy. Then we will be really living and it will be just like heaven. We confuse our life with an afterlife. In trying to keep life and death separate, we are often mixing them up. We have become so focused on this future life, on a later destination, that we miss what we have in this one. Like the wanderer being seduced down into the other world with the excitement and promise of a perfect life amongst the elves and trolls, only to realize when it's too late how much they miss of what they had. That, or we are re-injuring ourselves by constantly holding on to a past that we can never return to, right? This is what the Buddhists refer to as attachment, and attachment is the cause of all suffering. When we are grieving the loss of the life that we haven't had while we still have it, okay? That's to need, need. And the Germanic root of that word means to sink, to go down low, to sink down into that bog in the woods, to die. It's not to rise and love and live and shine. It's need. So this is where I would like to share something that I learned from working in a hospice unit. The people that were coming in there for care, their illness had progressed to the point where the average stay was two to six weeks. And there's a formal process to be admitted into palliative care that means that everyone there has had to gone through some level of mental process to understand that we have indeed opened the last chapter of their story. Yeah. And that was what was so remarkable to me, is that sometimes I would meet these people whose bodies were just completely ravaged by disease. Diseases that were literally taking everything that they had. And yet they had this incredible, bright and vibrant vitality about them. You know, I would go into the room and there would be this huge person with this dying little body below them. And sometimes it was extremely bright and open and sometimes it was very calm and wise. But the energy that they had, you know, they were just so alive despite the condition of their bodies. But now at this time, I was in my mid-30s, and I had some incredibly beautiful friends, you know, like physically beautiful, strong, athletic, creative, intelligent, and we were all in the prime of our lives, right? You know, these are people that had, God had literally given them every long straw in the draw, but they were literally crippled with self-doubt, shrunken and hollowed out by anxiety and addiction and fear that there was something wrong with them. You know, they were so broken and messed up and sick. And so I realized that there was something missing. You know, we tend to keep things quite separate. There's either life or death, health or illness, right? Death is the absence of life, so living is the opposite of dying. Health is the absence of disease, and illness is the presence of disease. But here were my friends with no disease, very sick and weak. 
and those people that had been completely overcome with disease, the most vibrant and alive, vital people I had ever met. And so I came to understand that wellness exists independent of both. You can be full of disease and still be well. You can live well, even though we are dying. So let's pause for a minute. Just feel our knees or look for something that we love in the house that we can see to blink on with intention, keep a picture of, because <laughs> it's in these spaces where we pause to enjoy the path that we are on, that we remind ourselves that we are both living and dying at the same time. It's in these spaces where we see a rainbow or hear a song that our voice is echoed in, that pause in between each breath. Those are the places where spirit sneaks in to talk to us, to remind us of what we will be when we no longer live. And that is part of this beautiful world where we already are. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. It just transfers from area of high concentration to low concentration. We are eternal. And when we invite that awareness of the always there bliss into our lives, I think we are honoring and integrating death as a sacred life energy. We are just a unique conglomerate of symbiosis in our present form. I've recently learned something about these small moments where awareness sneaks in, you know, these spaces and places where spirit comes in to talk to us and gives us these chances to choose which world we want to be in. And I have a little story about that I'll share to close us out for today. Because a little over four years ago, I was getting ready to go out, okay? I was in a particularly low point in my life. I felt lost lonely, small. I had been in love with a man who treated me like an option, and I was dumped by another who was supposed to be in the boring and safe route, you know. My last three jobs had all been very toxic and hostile places. I was just once again feeling like that outsider, right, that wanderer character, but not knowing where to go to find my bliss. I had forgotten my knees. I felt stuck. And my beautiful friends were telling me that I was just holding myself back, right? I was selling myself short. I just needed to show up, make myself visible to be available to the love that the universe has for me. And that's great and wonderful. So I went to a show downtown with a new girlfriend and I got drugged. The elves were in the bar, not in the forest. Instead of a boggy pool of water shining in the forest to mesmerize and enchant me like the Norwegian girl in the song, it was a glass of water the bartender gave me that had been spiked with drugs. They made it so I couldn't breathe, and I passed out, and I fell hard and fast backward onto the concrete floor. I went down into the other world, but I woke up, right? I had a brain injury. <laughs> It took a lot of four years to recover from that. I still have problems from it, right? There's still pain. I struggle. There's fear. There's compounded loss. There's sadness. There's anger. 
But I was really lucky that my skull didn't crack, right? The elf king didn't get me. <laughs> I came back to the surface. I got away. And we think it's because I had this messy bun on the back of my head that night. This big messy bun. I'm really grateful I have lots of hair because we think that gave me just enough cushioning that my scalp split, but my skull didn't. I can recover. And there's a lot about this story that's really sad. You know, things I experienced, how I was treated, you know, that it was all covered over. There were multiple power structures that failed to protect or help me. You know, there was no justice. It was tough. It hurt, you know, it still does. But I remember that I was hearing a lot of people say, oh, Shannon, that's just so unfair. But you know, karma exists. Karma will get him. And so there is that afterlife reference again. A situation where death had been so close, yet I'm still alive and living, but suffering. But in another life, or other world, you know, in some other dimension, there will be some kind of justice and accountability because karma. And I know what they meant, and I know that they meant well to say that, but it inadvertently made me start to wonder, is this my karma, right? Did I earn this? What did I do to deserve this? Why did this happen to me? Because for me, karma had been translated through a white Christian lens, right? It's essentially the golden rule, and it's very transactional. You know, if you put two coins into the good deeds pot, you get two coins back. Or maybe you can be a pagan and believe in threefold return, so you pay two coins into the good deeds pot, and you get six coins back, right? It's all very transactional. And I can understand how that's rooted in that destination belief of the afterlife. How do we build up our investment in angel feathers so that when we get there and we are judged, we get the promotion instead of more suffering? And so I started scanning my life, looking for all the bad things that I had done to deserve this. How did I bring this on myself? And you know, that really hurt my head. I had to stop. I had to pause. And in that gap of space that I created, spirit did sneak in to speak to me. And it reminded me that I am perfect in my imperfection. I had worked in service. I have done some very beautiful things. But I also have spent time doing things that taught me about the person I don't want to be. Karma is not transactional. It's not an investment in our afterlife, but another story to inform and instruct us on how to live our lives. My karma was not that something bad happened to me that night, but the choices that made me as I was when those bad things arrived. Because I was making pies that night, because it was Thanksgiving the next day, because I was fussing and stressing that they would never be perfect enough, because I need to compensate for the feelings of always being the outsider, even within my own family, because in that distraction of judgment, I realized I was going to be late. 
I had told my friend I was going to drive us and I was going to pick her up at a specific time. And so I quickly ran into the bathroom to change my clothes and pull my hair up into a big messy bun that I glanced at quickly. Yep, that'll do. Because I decided in that blink that it was more important to show up on time for my friend than it was to fuss over my hair. And that was the decision I made that likely saved my life. I chose to show love of my friend so she wouldn't be worried or stressed, and so I am protected. Me, aligning with spirit to make decisions informed by love and oneness and compassion, is the choice I regularly get to make to decide if I'm living or dying as I wander. And that's how I came to understand what those people I met in hospice must have learned. Because it's not where we're going, right? We're all going to die. Pain and sickness and injury and loss are inevitable. But the amount of suffering we have is our choice. Those ancestors of ours that learned to ritualize their grief, to turn death and dying into acts of communion, to support life and living. Those are the choices that we make to unite with spirit as we wander. Myself, my sad friends, you know, in order to love and accept ourselves as we are, we have to forgive ourselves for all that we are not. Release ourselves from need. Come away from the other world and gift ourselves a compassionate space to be in this one as we are. I think that is the good lesson that informs both living and dying well. So I'm happy to pray with you today that you always walk in light and awe of the magic that we are and always shall be. That you rub your knees or blink your eyes with intent or do anything that reminds you to invite space into your life for bliss to come forward. And may we choose to remain fully alive as we wander through the end of our lives with grace and ease together. Amen. Namaste. <laughs> <And> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much.